Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of the words we just sang and the truth of the words we just read on the screen. God, and now as we open up your word that is true, God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather and be reminded of these words. God, we believe, um, just like the disciples told you, you alone have the words of life. To whom else can we go? And so, God, we are turning to you now in this time, recognizing that you alone have life. And God, I know that there are people gathered today, listening, watching, that maybe don't know those words. God, we ask you to open their eyes, to to see, to open their ears, to hear this truth. But then those of us that do, God, I pray that you'd remind us just the gloriousness of what we're going to see. And God, we thank you for you are God, you alone. And not only are you alone our God, but no one has done what you have done. And so, God, we thank you for that. And as we open this word now to discuss that, God, I pray that you would speak to us. As always, God, help me to communicate it in a way that honors you and is helpful. Then help us all to receive it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the letter to the Ephesians or the book of Ephesians. We're kicking off a new series of messages, and and Lord willing, we'll be in this book for quite some time. The way we've had it, uh, have it laid out right now, we will do uh, chapters one through three at the uh, until the end of this year, and then that'll take us into Christmas. And then the beginning of the year, we always have our twenty-one days of prayer and fasting called Abide. Then, Lord willing, again after that, we'll pick up chapters four through six, and that'll take us to summer of twenty twenty-four. So we'll be in this book for a while, and I can't tell you how excited I am. I mean, I haven't been this excited since Texas beat Alabama. Uh, I'm telling you, I'm excited, excited. I was telling somebody last night, they're like, surely you can work that into Ephesians. I'm like, oh yeah, baby, we can, all right? So Ephesians is a a great letter, and, and arguably one of my favorites, not only because of just the um, richness with which it is written, but Pastor Dave and I talked about this on our podcast this week, if you listen to that. Uh, Ephesians 5.1 is one of the very first verses I ever memorized, and I remember being a new believer and reading this book, reading this letter, and it just being so encouraging to me uh, because of just its explanation of what God had done, had just recently done in my life, and then the, the imperatives of chapter four through six of how we are to live this out. So I'm so excited to get into this book, and today what we're gonna do is just the first two verses. The first two verses. Now, if you're new and you're like, oh, sweet, this, the sermon's gonna be shorter. Ha <laughs> ha, all right? Um, <laughs> just because it's two verses doesn't mean the sermon's gonna be shorter, because you're gonna see in these two verses, this is just the intro. This is just the prologue of this letter, and it is theologically rich, all right? And so I'm so excited about this letter, and these first two verses is the intro, and then I'm gonna use some supporting text as well, um, namely 1 Corinthians 15, and then just because I, I couldn't get away from it, but we'll go back and I'll just show you a text in John chapter one as well, all right? 
But in Ephesians chapter one, in these first two verses, it's outlined very typically in how Paul writes letters. And what I mean by that is this. There are three sections in these first two verses, three sections. And I'm gonna, really for our time together today in this sermon, I'm gonna show you these three sections. And the reason is, is because we want you to read this letter. And in fact, I'll mention it, but I'll go ahead and mention it now. I hope as we get into this letter, you read this letter multiple times. In fact, uh, someone encouraged me one time to read it 20 times for you to really get a flavor of what's going on here. And so as we go through this, just kind of systematically walking you through how it's outlined so that you can understand what's going on. And in uh, verses one through two, you see these three sections, and I'm gonna show them to you, and we'll just kind of talk about each as we go through. So here's section one, all right? Section one, it's not a point, but I'm gonna have it here on the screen just so if you wanna take notes, you kind of know as an outline. Section one is the writer, and that is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle of Christ Jesus. You have the apostle Paul is what we call him. So now look at Ephesians chapter one, Verses one and two, again, you'll see these sections and they're gonna be obvious. What I mean by that, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, all right? So that's the first section. You have the writer, the person who wrote this. Now, I love this phrase. In fact, it's the title of this week's message, by the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So three sections, first one, Paul. So let's talk about that. It's obvious that Paul wrote this because it tells us that. And, and whenever you're reading the Bible, just take it at, at face value. If Paul says it's Paul, it's Paul, all right? But what I want us to see, because when we think about the Bible and we're like, well, yeah, this is Paul, the apostle. We all kind of know him as that we can just kind of gloss over that and try to get into the rest of the text to get into what Paul said. But I want us to stop for a second and just look at how amazing it is that Paul, who wrote this, is an apostle of Christ Jesus. We shouldn't just gloss over that phrase because he tells us this happened by the will of God. Now, if you know anything about Paul, he didn't start out with that name. He didn't start out as an apostle. He started out with his name Saul, and he wasn't an apostle, he was a persecutor. He was literally killing Christians. He was there when Stephen was stoned, the very first follower of Jesus that was martyred. And then from that, Acts tells us, Acts 6, Acts 7, Acts 8, how Paul was literally, the Bible says, ravishing the church. Now that guy is an apostle. That should be shocking to us. It should be shocking to us that someone like that is now an apostle and writing scripture. That's shocking. Because this word here, apostle, it literally means sent one. And in a sense, all of us are apostles. And what I mean by that is we are sent. We are to live as sent ones. But theologically speaking, 
This word here, apostle, how, theolog how theologians have used it now, they describe apostles with a, what they would say, capital A or a lowercase a. And when I say we're all apostles, what I'm talking about is lowercase a. We are all called to live sent. Jesus said, Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples. So that is what it means to live sent. You go in and doing that. But the capital A apostle is referring to the 12 apostles who walked with Jesus. And the apostle Paul, even though he wasn't a part of the original 12, after Jesus's resurrection, he was added in. Because you know the story about Judas, he betrays Jesus. And so Paul is what we would call a big A or a capital A apostle. And what we mean by that is these are the guys who saw Jesus, saw him, not only in his life before his death, but also after his death in the resurrection. They saw Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They knew Jesus. And therefore, the capital A apostles have authority. So think about it like that. Apostle, capital A, authority. They have the authority to testify or witness to what they saw. And then they also have the authority to write it down. And they wrote it down in letters that we now call the Bible. All right? So Paul is a capital A apostle. In fact, he wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these guys didn't just speak the words of Jesus, what they heard him say, they wrote it down and now we take it as the authoritative words of Jesus. Well, that's a different kind of authority than you and I have. And the reason why I'm highlighting that is God chose the most <laughs> inconspicuous, the dude that you would have never thought to be that. In fact, let's look at how Paul references himself. This is the 1 Corinthians uh, supporting text. 1 Corinthians 15, verses eight through 10. Here's what Paul says. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Jesus, appeared also to me. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So this is how Paul understood himself. And there's a couple words here I wanna point out. And I gotta be honest with you, I'm so glad that Paul wrote this down. And the reason why I'm glad Paul wrote this down, he's writing down his feelings here. I'm glad he wrote that down is because there's sometimes, and I feel this way, and if you're honest, you feel this way, you feel like you're last. You feel like you're least. There's two groups of words here that start with the same letter, and I just love that about the Bible. Paul says, I was last and I was least, and I was untimely and I was unworthy. The reason why I wanted to start here in this section and have a conversation about the writer is because if we're not careful, we'll just move right on and think, well, yeah, the Apostle Paul. Yeah, but you don't know. That is not where Paul started. See, we look at his life now and we see where he's at, but we can gloss over the fact he didn't start there. In fact, he was the last and the least of the apostles. 
Let me ask you a question. You ever felt like you were last or you were least? Like you were the last one to be picked on the dance floor? You were the least, and by least, that means not desired. And then what's interesting, Paul even goes a step further here, and he uses the word untimely, as to one untimely born. And these two words connect, last goes to untimely, least goes to unworthy. And this word here, untimely, it's very interesting. This is the only time it occurs in the entire Bible. And it's a very... Um, weird word. And I don't mean that like I'm talking bad about the Bible, all right? It's just a weird word. Theologians are not really sure what it means because it can mean miscarriage. Now, I don't think that's what it means because Paul was born. Like he wouldn't say as one miscarried. It also can mean, interestingly enough, abortion which this isn't a message on those topics, but they are connected in the sense that the Bible understands a baby to be a human even before the birth. But they don't mean that in this context because Paul is saying, he wasn't saying I wasn't born or I was miscarried or I was aborted. What's also interesting is the word can mean monstrous monstrous. Now, theologians don't know if that's because Paul's birth was really hard on his mother. Like some of y'all that have given birth, you're like, yeah, it's a monstrous thing. I mean, I'm not a small person. I was almost 10 pounds. God bless my mother, right? And when my son was born, we, he was, uh, Lizzie was induced two weeks early because he was already seven and a half pounds. And he's like, you gain a pound a week at the end. And and, and our doctor was, told Lindsay, you're small, he's not. Let's go ahead and take him, all right? But that's not the idea of it either. I think, and, and where most people settle on this, when Paul is saying he was untimely born, he's saying he was monstrously born. A better way to think about it is this, he was born a monster. He was born a monster, the best way I can think about this is think about the birth of Adolf Hitler. That was a monstrous birth. Because no one knew, obviously, what he would turn into. And I think what Paul is talking about here, when he's referring to himself, he's like, and to one that was monstrously born. Because later he gives context, he says, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was a monster because he killed Christians. He ravished the church. And this is what I want you to see. That's why he feels unworthy, because he was untimely. He was monstrous. And yet, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and said, why are you persecuting me? Blinded him and changed his life. Let me say this. If Jesus can save Paul, Jesus can save all. If Jesus can save this guy, and not just save this guy, 
send this guy. Not just save this guy, but send this guy. One who was last, least, untimely, and unworthy. Here's why I'm stressing this. You might be here today and feel like you fit into those categories. Somehow you're last. You're always overlooked because you're least. You don't bring much value and you're monstrous by what's growing inside of you, namely sin and death, and therefore you feel unworthy. Guess what? You are a great candidate for God. If Paul got that, let me say it to you like this. If he can save a guy that's done something, quote unquote, even though it doesn't work this way, worse than you, don't you think he can save you? Which is why I like the next verse of verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 15. Look at this. This kind of summarizes the whole book of Ephesians. But, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I was last, I was least, I was untimely, and I was unworthy. But, conjunction, junction, what's your? Aren't you so glad for, I say this often, we'll get into this in Ephesians 2, best two words in the Bible. But God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It means it didn't work. I mean, he's saying it did work. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Listen, when Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, what he is saying is, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the grace of God. That's how I got here is what he's saying. See, that word by is a preposition of means. It's, it's, it's how this came about. Paul's saying, I'm an apostle, not by my will, not by my merit, but by God's. Now, we'll get into this in the next few weeks, but this is just kind of a precursor here, because again, it's in the text. But we're gonna have conversations about predestination and, and the choice of God. And, and yes, I'm not going to say that's a controversial subject because I don't like to frame it that way, but it is a confusing subject. I get that. And the Bible is going to explain it to us, and I'm going to do my best to explain it to you where this all kind of works together. But here's what I want you to see. What Paul is saying here is I didn't choose this because my choice was to kill Christians, but God had a different decision. He chose me to make Christians. And I want you to see that, because why in the world would God choose that guy who was subtracting Christians and then come to him and say, you got your math wrong, bro. I need you to multiply Christians. Because when we see that, we'll be under no delusion how this came about. This wasn't Paul trying to do something for God. This was Paul doing something against God and God coming and saving Paul and then saying, I'm gonna make you an apostle and doing something for Paul. And this is what I want you to see. I want you to see that without the will of God, without the grace of God, you and I would never be born again. And this is where I gotta be honest with you. And again, I understand this raises a whole lot of theological questions, but I just want to say this at the outset. 
This is why I don't understand a lot of times when people wrestle with the doctrine of predestination. They wrestle with the fact that God chooses. And I'm not saying you shouldn't wrestle with it. What I'm saying is, I hope you come to the conclusion, A, that God has the right to choose because he's God, but B, you understand if God didn't choose, you would have never been born again. And this is where people wrestle with this and they think about it in the terms of like somehow God owes grace to, if this is true, then God owes grace to everybody. No, he doesn't. Let me say it to you like this. If you're standing before a judge and you are guilty, does that judge owe you grace or mercy or linear sentence? No, all that judge owes you is judgment because you broke the law and therefore you get the full weight of breaking that law. That's judgment. But here's what people do, and this is what bothers me a lot of times, when they start talking about God, like somehow God is wrong or bad or not just if he gives grace to some and judgment to others. No. Because people are like, why doesn't he give grace to everyone? And that's misunderstanding what's going in here, because the real question is, why does he give grace to anyone? Because Paul deserved hell. Paul deserved judgment. Here's where Paul was right in 1 Corinthians 15. He was unworthy. He was monstrous. He was last. He was least. All those things are true. And we live in this weird world that try to tell you psycho Bible. No, 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 no. Those things aren't true. No, here's Christianity. Those things are true, but God. Yes, you were unworthy, but God loved you in your unworthiness and he made you worthy. It was by his grace, it was by his will that you are now a child of God. Let me give you this point and then I'll show you in John. It is by the will of God that we are born again. It is by the will of God that we are born again. Now let me show you John chapter one. Again, I wanna show you this because a lot of people think that, oh, that's just Paul. No, it's not just Paul. And it's not just John, it's Jesus. This is, because where did Paul and where did John get their theology? You know the church answer, Jesus. So look at John, this is how John says it. John chapter one, verses 11 through 13. He, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, here's the operative verse. Who were born, think of that, born again. Not of blood, so this isn't flesh and blood, nor the will of the flesh. That word there, will, is the same word from Ephesians 1. Now watch this. Nor the will of man, but of who? God. Not will of the flesh, not will of man, but of God. And this is, and again, we'll get into this next few weeks. This is when people say, whoa, 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 hold time. What about free will? I can tell you very easily, you have it. You have free will. I'm not saying, the Bible's not saying you don't have free will. Here's what the Bible is saying. You don't have the free will that you think you have. See, most Christians sadly come to this definition of free will, not from a biblical viewpoint, but from a secular viewpoint, a humanistic viewpoint. And what I mean by that is this. Most of us, if I were to ask you, what is your definition of free will? You would say you are free to choose, which is right. But you would think I'm free to choose right or wrong. 
and you think that you were born morally neutral. You were born neutral, and then you chose wrong, which made you a sinner, and that is wrong. You're not a sinner because you chose sin. You chose sin because you're a sinner. See, there's a difference between you and Adam. Let me say it to you like this. You are free, but Adam was more free. What do I mean by that? Adam had the ability. We did this back in John. Passe Bacari, passe non Bacari is Latin phrases of sin and not sin. Break the law, not break the law. Adam had the ability to sin or not to sin. But once Adam chose sin, listen to me, every human being born from Adam after that point lost that ability. You are free, watch this, but you are a slave. You're a slave to sin. And every, every inclination of your heart is not good, it's evil. Here's what's crazy. Even in doing good, you still have evil intentions because you like to post about it, right? You like to brag about it. And I'm not calling you out, we all do it. Like, you can't help it. You'll be in the middle of a conversation and, and somebody's talking and you're just like, I just want to tell you about how I helped somebody. What is that? That's evil. You're like, dang. But... See, here's what I'm saying to you. Yes, you are free, but not free in how you think. And this is why the grace of God is the most, we have songs about it called Amazing Grace. What makes grace amazing? It's because God saved you when you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. Here's what's amazing. You wanna know what you brought to the salvation equation? Sin, that's all you bought, bro. That's all Paul brought. And this is where people get this confused. They're like, well, don't I have to do something? No, because think about it. What is the analogy? Born again. Let me ask you a question, those of you who have had kids. Did your kids have anything to do with them being born? If they did, that'd be weird. Please say no, Lord help us. No. They received it. They were a byproduct of somebody else's working. So are you in Christ. Again, we'll get into this, but you need to know it's by the will of God that you're born again. And Paul's saying he was an apostle by the will of God. He didn't have anything to do with it. God did it. Now let's go. Second section. Section two. These two will be shorter than the first one. Lord willing, all right? Section two, the recipients to the saints who are in Ephesus. That's the second section of the intro. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter one. I'll show you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, that was section one, that's what we just did. Section two, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this section right here, is just as amazing as the first section. And they're connected. See, Paul was an apostle by the will of God. Now, this group of people in Ephesus 
which if you look it up, is still, the city still exists today. It's on the west coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. Paul calls them saints. Now, a lot of times he calls the church gathered at a location, a church or sent ones, or you'll see it in 1 Corinthians 15, just a second, brothers. But occasionally he'll use the word saints. Now, this is what's interesting to me. Saints, literally the word means holy ones, which is quite funny that the football team in New Orleans has this as their, their, their team. Uh, that's an oxymoron if I've ever seen one. But the idea, uh, and that's because I'm a vicarious Falcons fan, all right? All right, so. But the idea of saints literally means holy ones. Now, I wanna explain something to you. Again, we've already started talking about free will, election, all that kind of stuff. We'll get into it. But now I wanna show you how, I think this is one of the things that the Catholic Church, and I'm not gonna talk bad about the Catholic Church, because whether you like it or not, we all came from the Catholic Church, all right? from the third century to the 15th century, even Orthodox, all right? Um, which is, I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, which is funny, one of the weirdest projects we ever did at my seminary was try to trace us all the way back to John the Baptist. No, we all came from Catholics. But one of the reasons why Protestants, which is why we protest, all right, broke away from the Catholic Church was this idea of their understanding of how we're made saints, It's called justification. And I've talked about this when we went through the book of James years and years ago, back in 2017, which you can go look at that on our website. But the official doctrine of the Catholic Church, I believe most theologians would agree, is a misinterpretation of James, where James is talking about faith and works. See, the Catholic Church position thinks, yes, it started by grace, but it's ended by works. You have to add work. Your works are necessary to your salvation which the reformers said, no, 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 no. We are justified by Christ alone. And in Christ, we are made righteous. In Christ, we are made holy. And one of the ways this plays itself out is in the Catholic Church, what is called the veneration of saints. So what happens, if you're unaware, is after someone dies, if they lived a good enough life, then they might be appointed to sainthood. And one of the weirder practices of the Catholic Church is they will actually pray to saints, which we don't see in the Bible. And just, we shouldn't pray to Mary, we shouldn't pray to saints. And the reason why I would say that is, who better to pray to than Jesus? All right, I mean, pray to the one who made him a saint. But here's the point, and this is why I'm trying to say this to you, because I want you to see how amazing it is. The moment you trust Jesus, you are made a saint. The moment you trust Jesus, let me say it a different way. You are made holy. You are made righteous. You are now justified. What's the best way I can say it is it's just if I'd never sinned. You're made right with God. When God sees you now, he doesn't see an incomplete version of you. He sees the righteousness of Christ. It's like he wrapped you up in the sleeping bag that is Jesus. When he sees you now, that's all he sees. You're a saint. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. You are made holy. And and the way I want you to see this is Paul is writing to a group of people in Ephesus that aren't dead. 
They're alive. And yet he calls them saints. How in the world can you do that? Because he says, who are saints and are faithful in Christ Jesus. See, it was Christ that made me holy. It was Christ that made me a saint. Just like Christ made Paul an apostle, he made you and I a saint. He saved us. How is that for your feelings of unworthiness? How is that for your feelings of untimeliness, of lastness, of leastness? Yeah, you were last. Yeah, you were least. Yeah, you were untimely. Yes, you are unworthy. Guess what? Now you're first. That's why the Bible says the last shall be first. The least shall be most. The untimely shall be timely. The unworthy shall be worthy. That's the gospel, my friends. And this is all in the intro. And then he goes on and he says, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to show you something. And I don't want you to think I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because when, and Paul already said this in 1 Corinthians, when the grace of God comes to you, when the grace of God makes you holy, makes you a saint, guess what you're going to do at that point? You're going to live like a saint. You're going to live holy. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it does mean you are going to, by the grace of God, Paul said, I worked harder than anyone. It does mean that you are going to now do everything that you can by the grace of God to be faithful. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15, verses one and two. This is what Paul said. He said, now I would remind you, brothers, this is what I was referring to earlier, of the gospel, the good news I preach to you, which you received, watch this, in which you stand. The reference of standing is standing in the presence of God. The Bible makes it very clear. Who can stand in his presence? No one. Because you have to be holy, and if you're not holy, it will obliterate you. But Jesus Christ is holy. And the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus took on your sin. He gave you his righteousness. So now in the presence of God, by Christ, you can stand. You're a saint. But Paul goes on, look at this. And by which you are being saved. You're like, hold up. I thought you said I am saved. Why is he saying I'm being saved? Because both are true. Apparent contradictions in the human mind are not in the mind of God. What does that mean? If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Let me say it to you like this. We play weird games, primarily in the Western church. By Western, I mean European and American. And here's the weird games we play. We ask questions like this. How much can I sin and still be saved? That's a weird question. Or if I'm doing this sin, does that mean I'm not saved? Let me say it to you like that. That's like saying, how much can I not love my spouse and be married? And I don't know if you know this, but that's a dumb question. It's also like saying, how much can I not go home and have a good marriage? Dumb question. Why would you even ask it? That's like saying, how much can I hate you? And yet we still act like we love each other. 
And sadly, some of you are like, man, you just described my marriage. <laughs> we'll get into that in Ephesians 5, all right? See, a better question is, how much can I love you to show that we're married? A better question is, I want to go home to have a good marriage. So what time do you want me home? You see what I'm saying? That's a different question, different motives. And so we play this weird game in church where we're saying, how much can I disobey God and still be a Christian? Dumb question. Because if you are a Christian, I don't even like that phrase because again, the idea of Christian came about in Acts and I get it, but it's, it's more about being a disciple because we made this weird thing in church where you could somehow be saved, but not a disciple. No, it's saying, Jesus, how do you want me to obey you? That's the right question. Not how much can I disobey you and still be a disciple? Again, if you're a parent, think about this with your kids. If your kid said, hey, mom, dad, how much can I disobey you and actually still be your child? You'd be like, none. Dumb question. I'm not even, let me ask you a question. How much do you not want to eat? Right? <laughs> I'm not angry, I promise, I promise. But when Paul says, you received it, you stand in it, and hold fast to it, Paul is not creating this dichotomy of somehow you can trust Jesus and then lose your salvation later. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's showing you is if you trust Jesus, it will show out in the fact that you follow Jesus. So if you're not following Jesus, we can't be sure that you actually trusted him. So there is a sense, this is why we did a whole series on stewardship, that you need to be faithful. And that's one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter to these recipients. He's saying, you're saints by the will of God and are faithful in Christ Jesus. We'll get into that as we move through the book. Section three, you say, well, how has that happened? How can I be faithful? Here's the good news. The same way you were saved. Section three, the greeting, grace to you and peace from God. Let's read it again, Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, that's Paul, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ, that's the people. Verse two, third section, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why we want you to read this letter multiple times is because when you read it multiple times, things jump out at you. Now, I've said this many times before, but obviously since I preach, I you know, study this text quite a bit. And one of the things that jumped out at me when I saw this, which I say this often, are the prepositions. One, because they don't get any love. And I think they should. But here's what jumped out at me. The word to and the word from. To and from. Not to and fro. All right, to and from. Because watch. In order for something to come to me, it had to come from somewhere. You get it? In order for a punch to come to me, 
It had to come from somewhere or better yet, from someone. Wait, you know, that's how you do it. Just like Texas did. All right, so that's what, what happens. It comes from somewhere, from someone to. And I want you to see this. Here's what Paul's saying. Grace came to you. This is how you're saved. You didn't, watch it. you didn't save because you came to God. This is what makes Christianity utterly different than any other religion on the planet and what makes Jesus utterly different than any other founder of any religion on the planet because every other religion is not based on the, the fact that the founder came to you. Paul says grace to, you hear the direction in this? To you. From the peace of God. See, here's what I want you to see. This is what the entire book of Ephesians is about. We'll get into this in chapters one through three. The grace of God came from the peace of God to you. Now, here's what makes that amazing. What is the opposite of peace? Chaos, war. We say it's wartime or it's peacetime. Here's what's amazing. The Bible makes it incredibly clear that you and I are at enmity with God. What that means is we are at war with God. And I want you to see this. It's not a war that he started. It's a war that we started. Because we said, we don't want you as God. We want ourselves as God. So therefore, watch this. When we went at war with God, Here's what was coming from God to us, wrath. Wrath, judgment. This is what I was saying earlier about the judge. When you make war with the law, guess what? You're going to get wrath. So all God owes us is wrath and judgment. That's all he owes us. But God, watch this. He doesn't like that. Let me say it like this. It's not his will or his want to or his desire just to have wrath on you or just to have judgment on you or to be at war with you. Just like it's not any parent's desire unless you're twisted and wicked to be at war with their kids. What is the desire to be at peace? But watch this. To get peace from God, we must be at peace with God. In fact, that's my last point if you want to write it down. Oh, sorry, sorry. I skipped one verse. Let me show you this in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe what I'm talking about. Verse three and four, Paul said, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See, that is the gospel. And because Christ came, we can now come to God. So here's the point. Peace from God can only come when we have peace with God. Peace from God. Grace to you can only come when we have peace with God. 
We cannot have peace with God unless Christ came. And that's what I want you to see even in the intro. That by the will of God, by the will of God, Christ came. And by the will of God, Christ came to you. And because he came, he can take you who was last, least, untimely, unworthy and make you a saint and sent you. See, that's the gospel. And you got all that from the intro. By the will of God, you can be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that even in the first two verses of Ephesians, we see what the whole letter is about. We see the gospel, the good news that Christ came. He came because we were at war with you. He came because all we would ever get was wrath and judgment. You knew that unless Christ came, we would never be worthy enough. We would never get to first. We would never become holy. And that is why the greatest news on the planet is we are born again by your will. Because yes, God, we are free, but all we ever do is freely choose sin. But in Christ, you chose us. And because you chose us, now we can say, but God made me alive. And so God, I pray for anybody here or listening today who maybe felt like Paul, that they were last, least, untimely, unworthy, would hear this. If God could save Paul, he could save all. There is no one here today that is too unworthy for your grace. Because honestly, God, there's no one worthy of it. It's a gift. And so God, I pray right now you'd save them. No one looking around or talking here as we close. If there's never been a point in time in your life where you have come to this realization that you can't save yourself, you'll never measure up, but God's not asking you to. If you'll receive Christ, believe, you'll be made holy. You'll be made right with God. You trust Christ. So if that's you, you can trust Christ. You can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud. But it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me, that you sent Jesus in my place for my sin to save me, to make me holy. So I receive it. Forgive me. I'm trusting in Jesus alone. Again, no one looking around or talking, but if you're here today in one of our physical locations and you just prayed to trust Christ, would you just simply lift your hand up? We got men and women that are here gonna walk around, put a Bible in your hand with some next steps. And when they do, you can put that down. Thank you. But then those of you, maybe you've trusted Christ, which I know is a large group of us. And the devil has been honestly just beaten up on you reminding you 
of who you were. Because that old you, you, that flesh is still here. You're feeling last, you're feeling least, you're feeling untimely, monstrous, you're feeling unworthy. In Christ, you can remind him, you're right, that's who I was, but that's not who I am now. Because in Christ, my sin has been dealt with. I'm a saint. I'm holy. And then ask God for more grace to help you to continue to walk in the holiness. That's the good news. There's grace not just to save you, but there's grace also to sanctify you. Father, I thank you. That's what makes grace so amazing because it's undeserved. It's unmerited. But you're gracious and you gave it. And so God, we receive it. And God, we ask you to give us more grace to continue to follow you, to walk with you, to obey you. And as we go throughout this letter to the Ephesians, God, I pray you'll speak to us. Remind us of this news. Because by it, by the gospel, by the grace of God, we grow. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you, church.